Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. This is episode 60, Danny. And I, I think I think Danny's coming to us from a tin can today. <laughs> we are in a tin can with a radio host who forgot his microphone. <laughs> well, it wasn't you you remember the microphone. It was the That's cord. That's true. It's the cord. It's always the cord. Oh, dude. It was it was a sad it was a sad not only did I forget the cord, there was this moment where I was like, I forgot the cord. I was actually borrowing my wife's microphone because it's easier to transport. And so I had this moment where we're about an hour south of New York at this point. We're not turning around. <laughs> and I and I and I and I look at her and I'm like, I was planning to bring a mic cord. I did not bring the mic cord, so I was wondering. When you packed up your mic, did you happen to put your cord in the package? Because I didn't want it to sound like I expected her to give me the mic cord as well. It was one of those very delicate moments of marriage where you understand all of the different ways that an exchange can go sideways, where it's like, this is my fault. I did not ask for this. But if you had happened to do this, it would make my life a lot. Yeah, no. I, I forgot the mic cord, so I, I'm on I, I'm I'm on the end of a, a paper cup with a string uh, piped into the main line of say who say pot. We uh, all things considered, it sounds pretty good. It must be uh, <laughs> it must be a Dixie cup. Uh, I'm I'm about three blocks away from the from the White House is where I currently am located. I'm in Washington D.C. and I've continued to make Ohio State jokes the entire time that I'm here. <laughs> A signature. And somebody somebody asked me, and it's I don't have a great answer for it. Why have Ohio State fans become the punchline of January 6th White House jokes in college football? Because they kind of have. It's not just me. Like other people have made fun of the proliferation of Buckeye fans that may or may not have participated in that. And I didn't have a great answer as to why that is. Um. I mean, it's it starts with geographic stereotyping, and then probably just because they they have such a big fan base that uh, it's it's easier to get to them maybe with some of those jokes. It it could be, and it was also because Ohio is or has been. I mean, it's now gone consistently Republican, but it's not the most Republican state in the country by any means. Um, it it has become more red, and then I was like. Maybe it's because of the other schools in the Big Ten. Those are mostly located, even when they're in largely conservative states, they're in pretty liberal places like Madison, Wisconsin. This <laughs> is a pretty freaking liberal place. So Ohio State is a little bit of a cultural outlier in its in its conference, whereas, say, Alabama is more more typifies the SEC than stands out an exception to it. You know, they've been... Um... They've been finding all kinds of random stuff in the White House recently. Maybe they've got a, a spare microphone cord over there. <laughs> on over. In the just laying around the library. Next to that packet of mysterious white powder, did you find a mic cord? <laughs> Along with your cocaine. Pod. 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 This is media week, right? Like it you're is. getting ready to go to Vegas. Yes, I will be. Uh, I will be airborne tomorrow. Tomorrow, late afternoon. Uh, high of 114 in Vegas on Friday. Dude, I saw the alert yesterday that Phoenix has set a record with 19 consecutive days of a plus 110 degree temperature. Oh, <laughs> God. Just brutal. Yeah, I just can't handle that. I, I think I can handle that better than the, the swampiness of – I. well, I'm not sure. I shouldn't say because 110 is freaking hot. But having humidity on the East Coast, I realize what a baby I am about humidity. Yeah, the humidity's rough. I just, I, I get a kick out of the people who talk about the gloominess in Washington, and I'm like, I will take that 10 times out of 10 over 110 degree plus temperatures in the summer. 
Yeah. I had a – I really wanted when Miami's baseball team, when it was the, it came in as the Florida Marlins, I wanted them to be called the Florida Humidity. So you could say, like, <laughs> it's not the heat that's so bad, it's the humidity. Or, like, no, it's really the humidity that's worse. I thought it would have been a fantastic gimmick. Well, uh, you know, it's never too late. Did you see kind of <laughs> – Kind of along those lines, this, did, you, did you see the Seahawks rolled out their throwback uniforms today? I did. Um, I like the look of them. I think that's a it's a classic look. It also underscores the ridiculousness of the NFL in that like uniform announcements can make news. <laughs> so, yeah. It was a pretty cool video. It is. See, I and I feel I feel snide for even saying it. It is it is a pretty cool video. Um, <laughs> who's the first Seahawk you think of in the vintage uniforms? Uh, just because you just said it right now, I, I the first guy who pops into mind is Steve Largent. Yeah, what's your first play with Largent? I don't I don't think I saw Steve Largent play. Frankly, oh god, you're so. There is the best Steve Largent play. And I'm really not even considering, like, I'm not up for debate on this, was when he destroyed Michael Harden, who was a cornerback who had lit him up previous, previously in the game. And, like, on a kickoff return, like, Largent hunted him down and destroyed him, forcing a fumble. It's, like, one of the single best shot chaser sort of videos of, like, enacting his revenge in real time. Um I think for me, it's Kenny Easley, though. I think of Kenny Easley in those big oversized shoulder pads. I think I think Easley's the quintessential Seahawk in the throwbacks. The second guy who came to mind was was Cortez. Oh, uh, Tez is a good one, too. Unfortunately, the second the guy, end of those unis, though, I think. Yeah, but no, it was still, it was still those. <laughs> I think for me, the second guy is Dan McGuire. <laughs> 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 Which probably could use a little bit of psychological analysis um do but husky husky uniforms don't get the same i guess they change them more frequently like the seahawks haven't had different uniforms since 2012 2013 2013 i think is when they switched i think people definitely lust after the 1991 look um yeah and they did those throw. I thought they did a good job with the throwbacks. They wore against UCLA in 2021, but it was in 2021, so like yep. people aren't exactly inclined to think back. The the the, the two like throwback uniform games that come right to mind, um, where they executed the uniform really well, but but lost was USC in 2007 when they wore the 19 <laughs> the game where they honored the 1960 team and formally recognize their national championship they wore 1960 throwback <laughs> that i thought looked pretty cool uh and then the the 91 throwbacks last year or excuse me in 2021 against ucla they might uh i think it would be well received if they brought those back out for a game now that people are actually ex- excited about the product too i would agree what is th- what would be the least exciting uniform if they threw it back to would it be like the 1996 or 97 yes, the purple uh- helmets <laughs> the purple helmets. I thought they looked like the Fruit of the Loom guys from the, the, the underwear ads. There was the grape guy who had these grapes on their head. <laughs> yeah, I remember those. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought the Huskies looked like with the grape guy from the Fruit of the Loom ads. I will defend I, I will defend those only slightly. Um, I, I wrote a story shortly after Jim Lambright died a few years ago about how, and I don't think this was like messaged super publicly at the time maybe they could have done a better job spinning it this way but um he really he he played at a time when not everybody on the field had to be wearing the same color helmet and the like baddest meanest like hardest hitting defensive players could earn purple helmets and so some of them would wear purple helmet there'd be like a couple guys out there with purple helmets on like your 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 captain leader type guys and so wearing a purple helmet was like an honor and so i think when jim lambright took over and you know was kind of making the program his he probably had that in mind you know because that was that was kind of from his era playing for jim owens so that was a little slice of of uw history i wasn't aware of before i did that story well he should have sold that better because I remember the reaction. Uh, I was a, it was the summer after my sophomore year. And I remember being in class with 
was at least one. I think it might have been a couple of the football players. But Mike Reed, who was a fullback on the team and kind of part of the he was part of the heart of the 1993 recruiting class with like Fred Coleman, Rashawn Sheehy, Terry Holloman, um, who still does some stuff locally with, with the media, was part of it too. And I, I had a class with Mike that summer. And I remember asking Mike what he thought about the uniforms. He's like, I hadn't even seen a picture yet. And he's like, they're bad. They're real bad. <laughs> like it, it was it did it was not something that was received necessarily embraced by the players that were there. They were so poorly received that Rick Neuheisel was able to like immediately win over the fan base just by bringing back gold helmets. It still offsets like Neuheisel was responsible for what I refer to as the space weasel, like the the, the <laughs> iconography of the the Nike Husky, which I I, I still hate. But that is more than offset by the power of like when he came back and said, we're going back to gold helmets. It was like that that made up for all of the other things he did up to the getting fired for gambling. Actually, up to the lying about going and getting the San Francisco interview part. Um, when I talked to Reggie Williams last summer for a story on his recruitment, he, he when talking about like, why he would he became enamored with the hometown team and wanted to stay home? He he mentioned New Heisel bringing back the gold helmets. Oh yeah, he did. <laughs> that was a factor. <laughs> <laughs> Just, uh, see, people can yeah, you can you can dog on Oregon all you want for the uniforms and everything. It matters. It matters. It all matters. Oh, you know what else was awesome when New Heisel did the Northwest Championship. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Oh, that was fantastic. He saved that season with those stupid t-shirts and, and Braxton Clement like checking off the list. Oh god, I love the Northwest Championship. This should be a real thing. They should give away like as many as many trophied rivalries as there are like in the Big 10. Why can't the the Pacific Northwest champion get some sort of like maybe it's a a pelt of some kind at season's end whoever has the best record among the four. You know what you should do? Well, actually, and maybe we'll do it here. It it shouldn't be an annual competition. It should be if you sweep, if you beat the other mm. three Northwest rivals, like you earn something, like maybe a fir tree to put on your helmet. Um, That'd be cool. I, yeah, some sort of like because it's if you if you like if you make the other three schools like bow down to you like you should get to choose. I don't want to do tiebreakers or figure out like round robin style what happens if they don't play each other. But if you beat the other three Northwest schools in a single season, like you should get something denoting that. It also raises the point that people have brought up before that the the Washington Oregon rivalry doesn't have a name. Yeah, like for as as heated as it is. But I don't I know. Think, I, yeah. I, what would you come up with, though? Because you can't. Yeah, it should have a name. I mean, some people, I think, have just referred to it kind of generically as the border war, but that's boring. No. Um, I always think of it as the piss on rubber duckies game because, like, people, when it's at Husky Stadium, throw the little rubber duckies in the urinal, which I've never, I've never once. Uh, relieved myself on a rubber duck and not smiled and perhaps cracked jokes uproariously. Like that's never gotten old. I think, I think when I'm, I, that might be one of the last things that I lose of my consciousness is the enjoyment that I get from peeing on a rubber ducky in a public urinal. <laughs> um, we're going to get to Ian's question early today because he gets at the heart of uh, what has yet again become a, a, uh, non-news item, news item this week with Pac-12 Media Day approaching. He is Ian McFarland. It's worth a conversation with Ian if you're really in any step of product development. If you're looking at bringing something to market, looking for options to put a product you have on market, it's worth a conversation. IPMcFarland.com. And here's Ian with his question for us this week. Forgive my voice. I have come down with a cold, so... If the two of you could arrange a telethon for me, that would be fantastic. Obviously, it's media day on Friday, and reports are that there may be something coming as far as the media deal. What's the funniest thing that could be included in that deal? What obscure twist could make the Pac-12 somehow look more ridiculous to the rest of the country? 
Have a good week, guys. So if you haven't seen the news by now, the um, as reported by ESPN and The Athletic and Sports Illustrated and Yahoo and John Canzano and John Wilner on, on Tuesday afternoon, um, the Pac-12 is attempting to get ahead of, of the fact that it's not going to have a media deal in place by media day on, on Friday. Um, pretty obviously someone within the conference office uh, or, or someone working in a Pac-12 capacity reached out to to the national media with this message that, um, hey, they're not going to have a deal in place, but they're going to have one, Danny, in the near future, quote, which is no longer, I want, I want to, you know, it, that's very different than the very near future, uh, <laughs> which was the timeline for their anticipated consummation back in February. <laughs> um, in that it will have linear and streaming components and that <laughs> the conference presidents will be rewarded for their patience because there are new uh, bidders who have come to the table. <laughs> It, it, do you not? Do you not believe it? Are you not buying it? No, no, no. Sure, fine, whatever. It's just hilarious. Like sometimes you have to just step back and look at the absurdity of it. In which it's the dumbest story of all time. Is it fully six months now that we've been at this exact spot? Right. Like I mean the the tangible difference between this off the record two prominent media outlets the difference between this what, what was reported yesterday and and the the release that was sent out was it february mm-hmm. we talked about it last week of we're confident and remain committed to each other the 10 schools and we believe we'll have something the amount of actual change that's that's happened like they're they're really virtually identical positions like they're just semantic differences so that to me is hilarious because it means all of the conversation over the past six months has provided no greater clarity about what is actually going to happen and we're about to begin what is the final football season in their crowning sort of media here's the season folks with yeah we still don't know what we're doing about tv after this year which means we really don't know what we're doing with the conference after this year it's hilarious I still it it does seem like signs are pointing toward it will it will get done at some point. <laughs> like we talked about last week. The, the big the big twelve uh uh media media PR assault seems to have like receded a little bit, but oh my goodness. Near future. The, the birds of prey are out. Um and it, and again it's not the birds to- of prey are bored. <laughs> yeah, they're like they're this like, thing's been this thing's been dying for how long? Call us when it's dead. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just it's really funny. Like it's so, really what, it's really funny. What's the funniest thing that could happen then? I've always thought the funniest thing that could happen would be to ask fans to FaceTime during the games, like so they can provide like either through group chats or one on one. They the fans would actually you would crowdsource the broadcasting of it. Um, I think that would be the funniest of like, hey, we're all going to have to chip in together here to help the Pac-12. So let's crowdsource the broadcast. I think the funniest thing would be for all the focus on streaming and oh my gosh, if they end up on Apple or Amazon versus linear, which at this point ESPN primarily, you know, is that going to hurt? exposure is that going to hurt recruiting it'll be harder for people to find it i think the funniest thing would be if they end up on a streaming platform that's not either of those two and so it's even harder to find like if amazon wants a piece but not for prime and just puts it on freebie (laughs) (laughs) which is i think where you had to watch did you watch the show jury duty no oh you got you you have to it is so funny it's it's a mock documentary, right? With is it James Marsden or Marsden? Mars, yeah, James Marsden. It plays himself in it. Basically, it's uh, uh, one. It's it's a mock jury trial in which one member of the jury doesn't know it's a mock jury trial, and 
be- believes that he is actually on a jury for this, and it's a ridiculous case. It's pr- it's really low stakes. <laughs> um, but everyone else is an actor, and the idea is, but it's not like it's not cruel. It's not. It doesn't come across as like a prank on him. It's actually like a. It's kind of a feel good show. You got you got it. There's it's just it's hard to explain. You got to watch it. People who have, I'm sure people who have watched it who are listening are are nodding along because it really is great television. That's funny because I did see it the other night and I think it was when I was surfing through Prime. Yeah, it's um, on it's on Prime now. I want to say if there was a while you could only watch it on freebie. I could have that wrong. <laughs> but uh hey, listen, that's a free product. That's yeah. This is exactly the kind of thing that Pac-12 will get dogged for because it'd be like freebie. Oh my god, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? But freebie's a free app. You gotta pay for Peacock. Yeah. You gotta pay yeah. for Apple TV. So yeah. it's like uh the ACC just agreed to air a portion of their games on the CW. I I did see that. And I didn't I see people felt like dunking on that, you know. No, I did feel like we got beat to the punch on that one. It's like, dang, we didn't even get CW. CW has secured all of their inventory. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Of like sort of a janky off-brand streaming platform. Um, if you did something over the air, like you had to tell people to go buy like the HD antenna or whatever it was, like when like that would also be pretty funny. Um yeah, <laughs> it's just when I say it's sad, I'm not sure if it's sad. It's just it's it's a hilarious it's it's un it's unfathomable to me that considering where we were six months ago, that this is this is the spot that football media day is going to happen and they're not going to have a TV deal is it's wild to me. Yeah. And it's it's gonna just gonna be I'm gonna be very fascinated to see how George Klyovkov answers the questions that are coming his way. He doesn't really have to say anything, obviously. Um, and if they are at a accelerated, I think it's been the word that's been used. They are at an accelerated uh, portion of their negotiations. Obviously, it doesn't behoove them to really go into any detail at all publicly. But it is a it's a chance for them to um, shed a little bit of light on where this thing's headed. Especially like I'm, you know, Klyovkov said at media day last year, excuse me, that he he anticipated that a portion of their rights would go to a large digital partner. So like he's been he's been on the streaming train for a while. I wondered like to what degree he might be willing to discuss how it's looking in terms of the division of streaming versus linear, since that's such a big part of um of fans' concerns. You know, people want every. If you if you root for a school in the Pac-12, you obviously your your main priority is is probably getting that distribution number high enough so that they can remain competitive with hiring coaches and you know their recruiting operation and all those sort of things. But um, people want to know how hard it's going to be to find the games too. So then maybe that's a piece that he could shed a little bit of light on. But I I wouldn't count on any um, any real you know, hard specifics coming out of that, though it will be, it just will be interesting to see how he handles everything. A couple of things to note. Um, last week, uh, Bob Iger, who now runs Disney, a um, couple of stories in the Wall Street Journal, one of which was Bob Iger floating the idea or belief that ESPN is not a core part of Disney's brand and business, um, which was seen as a sign that they may sell ESPN. Um, ESPN has been part of Disney now for more than 20 years, but earlier in its, in its existence, ESPN was kind of passed around and sold a number of times. Um, and then that was followed up by a longer story talking about Iger believing that the sort of the situation he stepped back into as Disney when he returned as a president is a lot more dire than he first thought. And that they're having real concerns about the future of what is known now, like what people call pay TV, like subscription service television, which we used to call cable, which don't anymore because now they're streaming. So that's, that's something to watch in the background of one of the big heavyweights in sort of sports broadcasting right now, their parent company is having questions about the viability of that business. 
Um, the second thing is if you were going to come up with the most rosy case scenario for what has happened with the Pac-12, if you were willing to swallow all your cynicism and all of your, this sneering, of course they can't, maybe they're going to end up on WB or Ion Television, the best case scenario for the, for the Pac-12 is that in their negotiations toward a deal, another option has emerged later. Maybe at the threat of, hey, we're going to take this deal unless you have something better. And something better has come along. They do have something better. Reading between the lines of, and this is clearly something that the Pac-12 itself is sort of propagating, so it should be taken with not a grain of salt but a whole shaker, is that they're really happy with what they're going to come up with, which would mean maybe they have gotten a bid later in the process than they would have hoped, but that's going to make sort of all of the ridiculousness of the past six months seem worth it. That's, as I would say, like that's the most rose-tinted portrayal you could have is that something has happened here recently that has has switched, has made it worth them waiting and kind of looking ridiculous at media day because they know what's coming. Do you think from a PR standpoint, even if it if it were as bad as the the biggest Pac-12 cynics believe that that it is, and we don't know that it's not because we don't really know anything. We we just don't know. Do you think the Pac-12 has reached a point where they they don't care if forecasting a positive outcome ends up making them look silly in the end if that positive outcome doesn't doesn't happen? Do you think they're past the point of well? If the positive outcome doesn't happen, the conference is disintegrated. So what do we care if if people can point back and say, ha ha, you said a deal was near and it didn't happen. So like that's I think there's there's so much incentive to try to spin it positively that it is a little bit a little bit hard to take it at face value. I mean, you should never take anything that comes from a college <laughs> athletics conference at face value. But you know, I I, I I'm not saying that's definitely the case. But I, I think that um, there's sort of a nothing-to-lose element that could be informing their PR strategy here, don't you think? 100%. No, I think that's I, – and I actually think that's really well said. Uh, the future of the conference is at stake. Like they've, they've lost – however you want to say it, they've lost the two most prominent – their two Cadillacs of the conference in the biggest TV market went to the Big Ten. And the, the survival of their conference is on the line. And that is much more important than sort of not looking silly or not being able to fulfill the expectations they had in terms of the timing of the announcement. And that sort of your reputation can take a hit as long as you wind up with the best deal that gives you the chance to survive going forward. Because, I mean, really... I believe that in some form the Pac-12, Pac-10, or whatever is going to exist next season. But I think that the substance of this deal is what is going to determine if that West Coast Conference still exists the next time this all comes up, or if you're going to see like the further splintering of of what is now the Pac-12, Pac-10. That's what's tough about it is like, how much can the Pac-12 celebrate? if it does get a deal done on, you know, whatever the five to seven year term, let's say it's, you know, it it will be received more as a stay of execution throughout Mm -hmm. the rest of the country. And, you know, I think, I think it would be caused to at least quietly pop a bottle or or two in Pac-12 country that, Hey, you, you know, a lot of people didn't think that, that you could do this and, and, it took a year plus, but you got it done, and so let's celebrate for a minute because who knows when the next win that way is going to come or or if it ever will. But um, it, it will. It, it's it's not going to feel like the end of the road. Mission accomplished. Even if they get a a deal comparable to the Big Twelve, it's just going. I mean, okay, well, let's do it again in five years. You know. Yeah, you have two conferences that are the heavyweights: the SEC and the Big Ten, each with its own sort of broadcast backing. And then you've got a tier of three conferences that are all fighting to stay within shouting distance of those two heavyweights, the Big 12, the ACC, and the Pac-12. Right now, the Pac-12, 
because it doesn't have a deal is clearly a clearly on the shakiest footing going forward. And what the Pac-12 needs is not a deal that's going to vault it up above those two, but it's going to allow them to get, keep pace and have kind of a fighting chance to survive the next time uh, college athletics decides to play like let's screw your neighbor um, and, and poach what you can or reconfigure like whatever that next iteration of this is going to look like. Thanks for the question, Ian. Hope you feel better, by the way. I know. I, 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 I do like the idea of a telethon for Ian, though. <laughs> the ipmcfarland.com telethon. <laughs> yeah, it's a telethon. Like, let's, let's, give, let's, give, Ian, let's give Ian a, a, a helping hand here. He's always there for us to talk to us. We're going to be here to buoy his spirits. Yeah. Oh, thank you for the $50 donation to Ian McFarland. Also, are, are, you, are you trying to hire any employees or... <laughs> Get a product you want to bring to market. Yeah, that would be good. That would be good. That was worth the conversation, Danny. It was. I, I loved Ian's participation. He cracks me up. Um, any uh, any thoughts or surprises for you from the Pac-12 uh, preseason all-conference teams, which came out on Tuesday, featuring uh, Romo Dunze and Troy Fawatanu on the first team offense, Michael Penix Jr is the quarterback on the second-team offense. Uh, Braylon Trice is on the first-team defense. And Zion Tupuola fatui and Jabbar Muhammad, somewhat surprisingly, not because I, I don't think he's that caliber of player, but I didn't think he quite had that name recognition, also voted to set the, uh, the second-team defense on the, on the preseason team. Yeah, I'll say I was a little surprised Tuli wasn't, wasn't there on the second team. Um, but that might reflect that I've got a higher, more familiarity or a, a higher opinion of him. Um, I was surprised at defensive tackle that he didn't he didn't make any either the first or the second team. Um, I was yeah, and Jabbar Muhammad I think has a lot of recognition because of his 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 track record. But seeing a, a transfer pop up there as the second team. Uh, the second team preseason all conference selection when he hasn't played in the conference yet. Maybe that's just surprising because I'm getting used to the new world of of the transfer portal. Um, I was a little disappointed that the media members, nobody seems to have glommed on to my idea that we should, uh, as a matter of policy, hose USC and UCLA and just ignore them. <laughs> but I guess, I mean, that's that's probably like in terms of objectivity and fairness, like you're, you're trained, you're not supposed to, that would be unprofessional to let my, my type of sentiment <laughs> wait in there. Uh, if you, do you want to hear my, here's my craziest reaction. <laughs> I feel that Michael Penix is underrated. <laughs> yeah, fine. Caleb Williams won the Heisman last year. <laughs> Michael Penix still should have been the first team all conference quarterback. <laughs> that is what's uh that's what's rough. I mean, he might like he could legitimately be. I think most people would, you know, across the country, the consensus would probably be Drake, be Drake May. But like on preseason All America teams, he could legitimately. I mean, he he's a legitimate option to be a, the number two quarterback in the country, and yet still mm-hmm. would be the number two quarterback in his own conference. <laughs> in so, his own conference, yeah. That's yeah. But hey, they got a whole season to to go. Uh, compete for that honor this year so um maybe not so surprised that Thule wasn't um on the second team but not even honorable mention um didn't didn't even get four votes from the media and yeah I I think that's just kind of his style right like he doesn't put up huge numbers he hasn't been a first or second team all-conference guy in his career yet he's played a lot of football and kind of quietly does a lot of dirty work in the middle that's really important to how the defense functions and goes overlooked, doesn't show up in the stat sheet. And so that's just, that's sort of how it goes. Um, but yeah, he is the, the gulf between importance to his team and all conference recognition is, is probably wider for, for Thule than it is for any other player. I would say um, the honorable mention selections, by the way, Roger Rosengarten, who I think that's probably, you know the 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 biggest surprise, or if you want to say snub, if there's such a thing as a snub in a all all um, all conference preseason team, thought Roger Rosengarten had a shot to be uh, at least second team. He's honorable mention. 
Edifunio Foscio and Alfonso Tupatala, both honorable mention at linebacker. Asa Turner, honorable mention at safety. And Jaden Green, their long snapper, is honorable mention. Uh, I'm not sure I've seen a long snapper on an, on an honorable mention uh, preseason team before. If, if you were ranking Washington linebackers, does go forth is go forth number three on that list? Kind of kind of your middle linebacker Ulofosio and Tupatala are they are they both ahead of him on the on the depth chart? Do you think that's how it was through the spring? Um, Going to be really interesting because yeah, I mean the coaches love both of those guys, mm-hmm. and, and yet yeah, like go forth looked pretty good this spring. He's a senior, you know what to expect from him. He's going to have that kind of veteran consistency. He hits really hard. Um, I, it's a position where you've got to play more than the starters anyway. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it's it's you know Alfonso Tupatala started every game last year, and and Afuan Ulafosio was like he was going to be one of their guys. You know, he's a leader. They're bringing him to media day. He's a senior. He's healthy. You know, again, and he's got a chance to play a full season. So it's it's you look at Real and Goforth and think, oh yeah, like that guy looks like he's he could be a starting linebacker at Washington for sure, but. What's the argument against either Tupatala or Ulafosio? That's a tough one. Very, very good point. It was I, I've been interested to see how that position plays out, in part because I don't think we saw Ulafosio like a full season of what he could do, certainly. Um I think speed at middle linebacker has been the thing that this team has missed most since Ben Burkirvan left. Um I I, I really if if you were asking me, clearly the secondary play was a huge issue last season, but I think that you've got a lot of guys that are, I, I'm I'll, I'm really going to be interested to see if they're able to get the kind of play that they want from the middle of this defense from their linebackers. I always look at these lists and think, you know, there's always some surprise, right? Just like when I do my 22 most important players. If you look back at the end of the year, there's always like a guy or two on there where you're like, ah, you missed on that one. He wasn't really He wasn't really a guy. He wasn't really a huge contributor and there's maybe a guy or two where it's like, yeah, you should have had him in the top 10 and you didn't even have him on here. So um, with the same spirit, I like to look at the preseason teams. I think you, you mentioned Thule. He's probably a strong candidate for like, if there's a, if there's a Washington player who doesn't appear anywhere on here, who could end up being first Mm -hmm. or second team at the end of the year, he would be a candidate. Um, I kind of think Jack Westover, is in that category too. Now the first team tight end is, is Brant Keithy from Utah and the second team tight end is Benjamin Yurisek from Stanford. So those are two really good players who, um, I mean, you're, it's, I think it's Yurisek actually. Yurisek was a second teamer last year and, uh, Utah lost their stud tight end to the NFL and replaces him with a, another all conference caliber guy. So if those two guys are healthy all year, you know, they're going to be, way more of a focal point in their respective teams passing games um, than Westover will be. But j- don't forget Jack Westover was Washington's fourth leading receiver last year. Plus he he was responsible for the single most compelling play by play description when Petros was talking about what happened to his mouthpiece. And to say nothing of, uh, of the hurdles, the hurdles, you know, his desire to hurdle guys is so awesome. Uh, if, I used to say this about the Indianapolis Colts, like that you should just put like Peyton Manning's tight end on the list of like first teams or second team all conference. Like it didn't matter. Like you could you could have a dead body as <laughs> as Peyton Manning's tight end and he'd probably catch 60 passes. I feel the same way about Stanford tight ends. And I'll be interested to see if that changes now that you got a new coach there. But like the the machine like proficiency with which Stanford produces dominant tight ends is unbelievable. And especially because they're not like a lot of times in football. Now the great receiving tight ends are kind of glorified wide receivers, but like Stanford's tight ends are always tough as hell. Like they're really good blockers because that, that's that offense demanded it. So like the, the putting Stanford's tight end as the first or second team, all conference would be a very safe bet every year. Yeah, it will be because uh, they're they're going more up tempo um, and more spread out. Like, remember this is, and I'm sure it's changed since then. But uh, this is the offense that Jake Browning set the United States high school uh, 
career touchdown passing record in. So when he was fresh out of Folsom, that's right. Um, I don't know how that's going to work, man. Like I having big, tough, dominant run games at Stanford, I think is going to work better than there's, I don't know how that's going to work at Stanford because you're going to need, I, I, you might need more speed than you can get through the doors at that school. They're recruiting well right now. I mean, they've at least got, they've got guys committed. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting from, cause I think that question of they, they are recruiting well and maybe I'm wrong and this, but that traditionally Stanford has the thing that has generally tended to be missing is that next level speed. Um, so I'll be interested to see how that goes. I'm going to quote Dave Wyman, my former coworker. He goes, we have an institutional bias against speed. He's a Stanford graduate. Um, anybody else uh, who you think could surprise on, on all conference teams at the end of the year? If I was going for like somebody that's not on there, I could see one of Washington's other wide receivers jumping up. Like clearly Rome is his first team and Jalen McMillan is second team. But I do think that you could see the emergence of whether it's it's Jeremy Bernard or Jalen Polk. I think you could see a third receiver pop up there with a thousand yard season because and maybe that's me getting too carried away and what I think this offense is capable of. But I, I think I think you could see that happen. I think so the uh, the all conference teams haven't caught up to modern football because they still only honor two receivers, two which rec- I like. I like that to be honest. Two, it's it, well, two running backs, two so you know, two running backs, two receivers, and a tight end, which is better than doing two running backs and three wide receivers. Like we're talking about a conference that had ten members of the first team basketball, right? Yeah. Like the, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, so if you give me the choice, like, yeah, I think it should be three receivers and one running back to represent like conventional football. But I don't think the Pac-12 would do that. I think the Pac-12 would start having some like 12 or 13 number. And the next thing you know, we're going to have two tight ends, three wide receivers, two running backs, maybe two quarterbacks on the first team, plus six offensive linemen. Because, well, you know, there's sometimes that you have six offensive linemen out there. Yeah. Um Teams do that with their depth charts. They'll have yes. like 13 guys on there because it's, and I, I kind of get it, right? It's like, obviously these guys aren't all going to take the field together, but you know, sometimes we start two receivers and two tight ends. Sometimes we start three receivers and one tight end, or you have in Washington's case, two tight ends who are like basically both starters, but they won't both start, you know? So, but but the reason they're doing that is not to give you an accurate of idea of who's going to no. play. It's to protect feelings. That is not the function like, of the depth chart. <laughs> the function of it is like we need to protect everybody's feelings. There should be eleven players on a first team all conference offense and eleven players on a first team all conference defense. Period. End of story. Oh, I agree. It should be eleven. I just don't know if um, if the distribution is correct. But then, yeah, I mean, limiting it to one running, but so only two running backs get first or second team honors. That'd be. That'd be pretty tough. Although, I don't know. I mean, not a lot. Gotta go one way or the other. I'm I'm fine with three wide receivers and one running back. I'm just not fine with three wide receivers, two running backs, because that's how you lose superpower status. So you start making accommodations. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think they would. Uh, I don't think they would do that. It, they, you know, they didn't even do the preseason teams for a long time. Um, I think it, it's only the last few years they've had the media vote on it, and it may you know. It makes sense. You want to create as many opportunities for your players to be honored as possible, right? Of course. Because like, especially if all the other conferences are doing it and like PFF is going to do it and ESPN is going to do it and the Athletic is going to do it. And maybe not at the conference level, but yeah, you know, Athlon's going to have, I think Athlon had, went all the way down to fourth team preseason all Pac-12. <laughs> you know, Phil Steele probably names every player in the conference at some point, you know, so why wouldn't the conference have an official one they could point to and say, hey, the season went how it went, but this guy was first team preseason all conference. He was supposed to be good. It reminds me, it very much reminds me of what I was told 
when I was covering high school sports at the Seattle Times, which is you get as many kids' name in the newspaper as possible because that's what sells papers. Yeah. Get as many kids as impossible. I do somewhat miss the days where there used to be a Playboy preseason All-American team. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know. When did that stop? So Doug Holler at The Athletic did a great story on the on the Playboy All-America team. Um, I remember for a fact when Lawyer Malloy got chosen for it um, and that – they would go, and I think they, I think they had a party honoring them at the Playboy Mansion. Oh yeah, oh okay. So you're right, you're right. It was preseason. Uh, I remember this specifically, and I just looked it up uh, because I wanted to get it exactly right. Washington linebacker Jason Chorak held off on the NFL draft and returned for his senior season in part because he wanted to make the 1997 Playboy All America team, which he did. Quote, there's only a select few people who can literally say, hey, I've been in Playboy, Chorak said. <laughs> That's one of those things that, like, I feel like, you know, what is it, almost 26 years later, um, it's kind of, like, easy to say, oh, yeah, I came back. I came back to college because I wanted to make the Playboy. You know, who knows if that was actually true, but, like, he said it was, so it's a, yeah. it's a it's a fun story at least. That it's hilarious for me to think about like an era in which like people now wistfully will talk about like when college athletes were doing it for the right thing or some pure time in college athletics, and you're like, and one of the premier honors was a preseason all America team that was published by a magazine known for publishing uh, nude and topless photos of beautiful women. <laughs> like, it's just, there's nothing that to me that like quite distills the contradictions of sort of these pure, the ideals of amateurism with the reality of how the whole situation would play out than like <laughs> the playboy all American team. College, I should... your college football. Torak <laughs> was one of those guys. He was part of that recruiting class with that I was talking about with Terry Holloman, like that class of 93 that came in uh, with on probation. Like they came in, their true freshman year was the first year of probation under James, and they almost entirely stuck together. Yeah. Um, like they didn't, didn't lose – and for the first couple of years, and I think eventually a couple of guys transferred out, but those first few years, they all stuck together, which was remarkable. They stuck together even through the first couple of years of the Purple Helmets. Yeah, and that's, you know, never been more reason for somebody to transfer than the Purple Helmets. <laughs> the Purple Helmets. <laughs> Do you remember how much people hated the white pants, too? Yeah, because I'm one of them. <laughs> I hate they, they the They wore those pants. for like a game against Oregon State that was way closer than it should have been. Yeah, I do, I did not like the white pants at all. Um, I've I definitely have had some beefs. I also don't like the black helmets, and a lot of people do. And I don't particularly like the C three PO shiny gold helmets, which a lot of people do. So I realize I'm kind of an old dude now that's grumpy about things. Say who say pod maintains its five star rating on Apple Podcasts with 185 ratings now, and maintains its five star rating on Spotify with 140 ratings if you haven't rated the podcast and you haven't left a review and you feel so compelled we sure appreciate it it helps people find the show helps raise our platform a little bit we're also going to be uh beginning next week we'll have some some audio from pac-12 media day and and we're gonna have we're gonna have some football to talk about yeah some uh some I, I i'm so hung up on the media rights thing i'm, I'm like having to rack my brain today for what football topics i'm actually going to ask about Michael Penix Jr. and Edifu on Ulafosio will be there. It'll be interesting to um, to kind of contrast the attention that Penix gets relative to Caleb Williams, you know. Caleb's Caleb's obviously like an incredibly skilled quarterback, and like I'm, a, but he, it was a strange Heisman Trophy winning campaign, and I think some of that is because of the because of the loss in the in the conference championship. Like it felt like when he won it, there was less momentum behind him than there had been. Um, I'll be interested to see sort of how that carries forward and if he is how much of a favorite he's regarded for winning the award again 
this next season because I don't get the sense that he's going to be considered a huge favorite. He definitely is preseason, but I mean, you know how that goes because who's, human who, bias comes in at a, you know, even if he has an awesome year, if it's at all close with another candidate, like human beings are just like kind of dumb and will resist voting for the same guy again, even though that's a totally stupid reason to not vote for somebody. I mean, the last back to back Heisman trophy winner is Archie Griffin. Mm-hmm. It's like, and that's mid seventies. And you've had for a long time, it was largely seniors or guys that didn't have eligibility or weren't coming back who won it. But that's not been the case recently. You've had a lot of guys that have won it with eligibility remaining and, and don't win it again. Um, it's really, I mean, it's certainly more likely than not that it, there is a different winner. Um, it's sometimes even from the same team, a different guy ends up winning it. I, I kid you not. I just got an email from Spotify, the subject line, a special thank you from Atmosphere, thanking me for being a fan and granting me special access to get tickets to their upcoming tour. Now, I am a fan. I, I am a fan of atmosphere. Yeah, I like atmosphere too. Uh, MC Slug going to be in Seattle on November sixth, the Monday after the uh, USC game. Where do they play at? Where are they playing in Seattle? Let me find is it out. The Showbox. It is indeed. I don't even know where the, shows. It is indeed at the Showbox. They, I've seen them at the Moor. Um, I actually I saw them in New York at Webster Hall right before the pandemic shut everything down. Um, he does dad rap now. Yeah, which is which is pretty fun. This talks about the difficulty of stepping on Legos and the attractiveness of mom jeans. They should be playing Lumen. (laughs) I think my favorite rhyming is when he says, I'm a slow typer, a so so writer, but I've been the poop since I was an infant in diapers and I'm going to stay dope all the way to the end from the cradle to the grave, the pampas to the depends. (laughs) That's great. Uh, we uh, we strive for the same thing here at Say Who Say Pod. That's exactly right. Stay dope all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next week.